Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the many changes that this pandemic has brought about. As COVID-19 spreads around the world, it is bringing in its wake states of political emergency everywhere. Democracies, autocracies, populists, mainstream politicians, they're all doing it. We're going to ask whether it's possible to say which of these powers are legitimate and whether it's possible to say when it should end. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the only magazine willing to ask the questions that keep you awake at night and answer them too, even if it takes 10,000 words. Is it okay to have a child in the age of climate crisis? Where next for the coronavirus? Was it a hermit crab that ate Amelia Earhart? You know where to go. Talking Politics listeners get to subscribe for a world-beating rate using the URL lrb.me slash talk. They'll even send you a free copy of Sinomania, writing about China, from the London Review of Books. Just go to lrb.me slash talk. Joining me today to talk about political states of emergency, we have Helen Thompson, who is in London. Hi, Helen. Hi, David. And I'm also delighted to say that Leah Ippi, who is Professor of Political Theory at the LSE, but is currently in Berlin. Hi, Leah. Hello, David and Helen. Hi. Hi. So before we get into the political theory and the political practice of emergency politics, Leah, do you want to just say a bit about what the conditions are like in Berlin? Because we try and check in with people as to their lockdown experiences. How does it feel at the moment in Germany? Does it feel like an emergency? Yes, the government went very quickly from introducing social distancing measures to enforcing the contact ban, which is what's going on right now. And there's restrictions on gatherings in public places, gatherings on two or more people who don't belong to the same family. The restaurants, concert venues, clubs are all closed. And you probably know Berlin thrives on clubs, so this has been a big hit on the city. And university activities have been cancelled and schools and nurseries, everything's closed. So people are mostly working from home. So it's the full, semi-full lockdown experience. Does it have a strong police presence? I mean, one of the questions people are asking in the UK is about how this can be policed. Does it feel German? Yeah, I mean, um, well, I haven't been... I don't know what I mean by I that. <laughs> I haven't been out of the house for 17 days. Really? Members of my family who have been out, who have been to the park on weekends, and so they said that this weekend was a really nice day, and apparently the park was completely full, and there were German police cars going around with megaphones telling people to go home, and if they didn't need to go out, they didn't need to be in the park. And so, yeah, there is a police presence. It's visible, but... Uh, it's not really exercising its authority in the way in which the police normally exercise its authority. I think. So it's it's visible but non-coercive for now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of gently, it's nudging people to, it's just by the sheer presence to do what they're told to do. But as I say, the, the park on the weekend was completely packed, apparently. And at the risk of this sounding like a national stereotype, the most German thing that I saw was an edict that came out, I'm not sure exactly from where, warning people not to joke on April Fool's Day, because this is no joking matter. And I couldn't tell whether that was itself a joke or not. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I haven't seen that. I didn't know that. So we're going to try and make sense of what states of emergency are, and whether it's possible to distinguish between different kinds, some of which may be legitimate, and some of which may not be legitimate. The challenge always, the basic, I guess, 
almost philosophical challenge with states of emergency in politics is that they are outside of the rules. That's the point of them. The usual rules don't apply because something has happened which is sufficiently threatening or serious that it requires politics to move into a new space. So it's not rule-bound, but there's always a question about whether there are rules that still apply Mm -hmm. under these new conditions, because if there are no rules at all, the fear is always that the state of emergency becomes the new politics. Leah, if we start with you, either in theory or in history, are there ways of thinking about this kind of exceptional emergency politics where you can say there are still criteria that apply that allow us to say some of these acts are and some of them aren't legitimate? Yes, there are. And both in the history of when the concept of emergency was first invoked as something that was supposed to be compatible with some form of rule by the people and also in how it's been sort of carried out and embodied in the legal texts and the legal bodies that we're familiar with. One has to do with the nature of emergency. It needs to be a public emergency where public is understood in a non-factional way where the idea is that the emergency is not seen as an emergency by some parts of the population of the citizenry, but not others. And where obviously the understanding is that uh, in, in a political context, in a political community, there's different parts of that political community. They may disagree also very fundamentally with each other. And for an emergency to be called an emergency, it needs to have the agreement of all of these conflicting parts of the political community, that there is really an, an authentic emergency. The second one has to do with the nature of the purpose to which an emergency might be put. So it needs to be a kind of existential threat, something that threatens to cancel the conditions under which we can live in the first place, under which we need we think we need politics in the first place. And so it's something to do with, as I said, what is the point of the emergency uh, and what is the point of declaring an emergency is to say that there is an existential threat to the political community that threatens it to, to undermine its very existence. And then there is also issues around when an emergency can be legitimate, which have to do with the nature of the regime and who authorizes that emergency to be called an emergency. So ideally, it needs to be authorized by the people and it needs to be in the service of protecting some fundamental interest of the people. And then I'd say there's two other important criteria. One has to do with the time limits. So there has to be a clear indication of when the emergency will end. And we can talk, if you want, a little bit more about how this was understood in in the history of political thought and um, in, in political theory, in contemporary sort of law. And the other one has to do with proportionality, the idea that the emergency, including how we understand the limits and including how we understand the kinds of measures that need to be taken Uh, in the emergency situation needs to be proportional with the kind of restrictions that we place and the freedoms that we remove. And one classical version of this is a word that we actually associate not with a state of emergency, but with the decay or tyrannical form of politics, which is dictatorship. So the classic Roman Republican dictatorship was originally conceived to meet these criteria, if I understand it. So it was actually fairly constrained. The idea of the dictator was the person who stood outside of the bounds of the constitution, but acted for the reasons that you gave, because there was a genuine existential threat, because factionalism had been trumped by a kind of notion of a coherent people, because the people authorised it, because it was time limited, and because it was proportionate. Is that right? I mean, is that actually what a dictator was in the Roman world? Yes, absolutely. 
the way in which we use the term dictatorship now, which is slightly derogatory and where we apply it to individuals, the ancients would have said that that confuses the category of the dictator with the category of the tyrant. The tyrant is someone who abuses power, who uses power in non-accountable ways, who is violent, and so on. Whereas a dictator is in fact an office of the Republic of Rome, and it's an office that is part of the constitution of the classical Roman Republic, which is to say that when there is a moment of crisis or when there is exceptional circumstances of war, civic unrest, profound, as I say, existential threats to the Republic, then the dictator is a supreme office of the magistracy, which is required to guide the Republic under these circumstances. And this is part of the system that the office of the dictator is part of the system of checks and balances of the Roman constitution, which says that precisely in case of severe threat to the Republic, speedy emergency measures are required to restore order and stability. And, and the idea is that to avoid delays, because an emergency requires speeding acting, after deliberation in the Senate, the consuls nominate a dictator, and sometimes it's even happened with a popular vote and not just through the Senate. And once dominated, the dictator becomes the kind of chief executive and supreme commander of the Roman army, both within the city and outside, and has virtually unlimited powers that are superior, even though, as I say, it's an office of the magistracy, they're superior to those of any other Roman magistrate. But what is, again, very interesting in this, uh, how in, in, in the official doctrine of the dictatorship in the Roman Republic is that here the terms of office are supposed to be as brief as possible. So while we now tend to think of dictators as people who cling on to power for a very long time in the Roman Republic, a dictatorship would uh, be, a dictator would be required to abdicate as quickly as they could and typically within six months and authority will have to be restored to the Senate and the people of Rome. There's only a couple of cases in which uh, it happened that the uh, the Roman dictators hang on for longer. One was Caesar and one was Sola. And in both cases, these were considered to be deteriorations of the form of power that the dictator has. So Helen, if we try and link that historical theoretical framework to now, on that last point, two things leap out to me. So the th- six-month time limit to dictatorship, British government has assumed extremely wide-ranging emergency powers. There is meant to be a six-month sunset clause here. So the time frame looks roughly similar. And we'll talk a bit about whether that matches the time frame of the pandemic itself. But the obvious difference is the dictator is bringing in someone new from the outside. I mean, it's a new person who has specific powers. All of these emergency powers have been assumed everywhere in the world, as far as I'm aware, by the governments in place by the sitting politicians. It's not like Boris Johnson has called in, I don't know who it would be, Tony Blair, to act as our dictator. That's the big difference, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think there there are several um, differences. I mean, I think that actually on the act that's been passed in this country, that it's actually for a two-year period, but that it can be, it has to be renewed by Parliament on a six-monthly basis. Okay, so that means that the powers have a potentially longer remit but six months is the limit under which the emergency itself can stand on its own terms without being renewed. It is. So the, the, the Parliament has to reconsent to it if it's going to continue for more than six months, which is not quite, as I understand it, the way that it was in the Roman Republic, where the time period was taken to be a maximum of six months. But I think you're absolutely right that there is a fundamental difference in the sense that the dictator was a, a constitutional the authorised position within the Roman constitutional structure. Um, It wasn't a case that one of the existing consuls 
was given the power, which would have been, the, I think, the equivalent in the Roman system of being able to make the decisions that the dictator could. The, the consuls got to choose who the dictator was. I think, though, that it's important to see as well that the way in which the Romans thought about it, at least as it's come down to us, and I think that probably the things that Machiavelli had to say about it are quite important in the way in which what happened in Rome has come down to us, is it was very much seen as being embedded in the constitutional structure itself. And that's why what Caesar and Sulla did were completely different, because they were they were tyrants because they were they were acting outside the constitutional structure of the Republic, whereas the dictators that had been appointed by the consuls in the early years of the Republic were not. So the, the, if you try to translate that into where we are, I think you would see the, the one, the dictator or the emergency that becomes tyrannical as when the executive started to act in ways using the authority given them under the emergency that were not related to the origins of the emergency itself. Leia, because the other thing that you could say about the difference that I just highlighted, it's not someone brought in from the outside, these are sitting existing politicians, is that the first test that you cited, which was this has to be non-factional, this has to be a threat to the people and the people understand themselves as a single people, their previous divisions are overcome. And there's something of that going on at the moment. I mean, in Britain, there's loose talk of a government of national unity, though it seems like a long way off at the moment. Incumbent governments everywhere, including in the United States, the Trump administration, are seeing their popularity rise. But these are still factional politicians. These are still party politicians. We are giving emergency powers to people who hold office, not because they are the new dictators, but because they won elections. Yes, um, this would be, I mean, one of the things that critics of, of the modern idea of sovereignty would actually say is that there is a continuity between sovereignty and dictatorship in that sense, in the sense that what distinguishes the Roman conception of dictatorship, which is one where you have an individual who is the dictator, who, as you say, is brought from the outside from the modern idea of dictatorship, is that the, in, in the modern case, these dictatorships are authorized by the people and they are authorized by the people because of the way in which we embed sovereignty in law. And so, so someone like Carl Schmitt, for example, made this distinction between the commissarial dictator and the sovereign dictator, would say that the emergency that we face now shows us precisely what the nature of sovereignty is, whereby sovereignty is, in the end, rests with the executive, and it's the executive who decides what is the exception. So, you know, Schmidt famously argued that uh, the sovereign is who he who decides about the state of exception, and we would say this is what we see now, is precisely that executive authorities, the executive bodies, that make decisions about what we call an emergency and how long the emergency is going to last and so on. Can I just say that? I think that it's, it's not right to think that the, there was some kind of presumption of unity when the dictator was appointed in Rome, because the dictator could also be appointed to deal with pretty serious social conflicts. It wasn't just a question of being appointed, although they were largely appointed in relation to war. And also, if they were appointed in relation to war and if they were appointed in relation to social conflicts, these things aren't necessarily far from exclusive with each other because wars in the Roman Republic tended to generate serious social conflicts. So I don't think it would be right to think that you kind of had some kind of consensus kind of politics that suddenly descended upon um, the Roman Republic when the dictator was appointed. But still, the dictator was meant to rise in some way above that social conflict in order to deal with it. The dictator was not meant to be partisan within that conflict. No, but I think that you'd find it, that in practice that, that it, it couldn't possibly be like that in the circumstances in which they were appointed. Yeah, because everyone is partisan in some way. 
in a way, what's the, defined this shift from how we used to understand dictatorship from the Romans onwards to how we understand dictatorship now. Part of the argument is, I think, that the Romans would have said that what the dictatorship does is to restore civil order to the... And whether that's rhetoric or not, it's a different question. But their claim would have been that there was a moment of kind of normal politics in the Roman Republic. And then there is a moment of fundamental threat to the existence, to the survival of the Republic, which comes from either, you know, profound civil unrest, but mostly, as you say, war. And the idea is that dictatorship restores the Republic to its previous condition of some kind of civilized interaction between parties that still disagree, but not at this fundamental level. Whereas I say the use, the sort of modern use of dictatorship and the the appeal to the Romans have been in very different ways. If you think about how the concept of dictatorship was invoked, for example, during the French Revolution by the French Republicans, it was very much a forward-looking conception. It wasn't about restoring civil peace that we had or restoring some kind of civilized way of interacting in the French Republic. The idea is that we need a dictatorship as a form of provisional and transitional government so as to create a future condition of justice because what we leave behind is precisely profound conflict and division. So I think it, differ- it reflects different understandings of how a political community operates and what it is fundamentally and how fundamental these conflicts are. And I'd like to come back to that at the end because, of course, there are people who think that the current crisis is potentially at least not about restoring what we lost but about transitioning to something new. But at a more practical level... If you think about some of the tests that you said we should apply or we could apply in theory to this, there is a question about whether this is an existential threat. I mean, we are dealing, we are not dealing with a war here. We are not dealing with civil breakdown in almost any of the countries that have invoked these powers, although there is the potential for that in some. They're probably not in the countries that we three are currently in. But we are dealing with something that at least has the potential, as it's currently being conceived by politicians, to overwhelm the system. And the focus is on healthcare systems. So the point of unity in almost all cases, particularly in democracies, is that we need these powers invested in our politicians, which have not been legitimated by the people, the executives have done it for themselves, in order to protect the social order that they uphold from its potential point of breakdown, which is the collapse of healthcare systems. Leah, does that to you sound like anything that even comes close to this more theoretical justification of emergency powers? Yes, absolutely. And it's obviously not just about the healthcare system, but also about everything else that is around the healthcare systems, labor markets and so on. So once the emergency is called and uh, and it's done, as you say, in the name of protecting the healthcare system, then everything else is also affected. And so, and then, then that becomes itself part of an emergency, right? So an emergency that starts for something very targeted, which is the virus and making sure that people are not infected and so on or that we can contain, uh, or that we can limit, or we can make rational use of uh, hospital resources and hospital beds and so on, then once the emergency is called, that also obviously affects everything else around it, as we've seen now with the economic implications of it, and also with the implications that it has on political life and on social life more generally. So then the, then that becomes, the, the, the solution of the emergency becomes a kind of emergency of its own. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the really huge difference between the way in which the Romans would have thought about this question and where we are going is the basic premise in the, in the Roman Republic where laws were concerned was that the, the, the dictator could suspend laws. The dictator wasn't in a position to make new laws. What we're seeing, particularly actually, I think, in the in the economic provisions that the Emergency Act, at least in, in Britain, allows for, the government now has the capacity to act in completely 
unprecedented ways, not just in terms of, of people's civil liberties, in terms of being able to detain people who are suspected of having the infection who aren't in, in, in quarantine, but what it can do economically. But are those unprecedented powers, powers that could have been exercised anyway, in the sense that these are executive powers and executives have more and more discretion in our political systems. So some of the economic acts, some of the things that the British Chancellor of the Exchequer has announced he's going to do, the difference is he's not having to take this to Parliament. But it's not a huge, is it, leap from the kinds of powers that chancellors could have exercised previously. It's just the scale of it is greater. I mean, the numbers are enormous. Executives in our systems do or have for a while, had quite wide discretionary powers, haven't they? I mean, I think there is a way of, I mean, I haven't actually read all the, the legislation itself, but I mean, I think you could pretty much justify the Chancellor doing almost anything under the uh, emergency, the, the Coronavirus Act in Britain. And I, I don't think you could argue that that was the case before this. And is that because Parliament's role has been diminished? No, I think it's more about in relation to the relationship between the, the state and um and corporations and say landlords, for instance, than it is um, than it is anything else. Another thing that's interesting is that one of the other features of how we think about emergencies and so on is whether there are any existing provisions in the existing body of laws that tell us what authorities need to do if there is an emergency. And from what I've read about the current Coronavirus Act, I mean, that in itself is obviously a self-standing act, but it does seem to rely also on existing legislation around the Healthcare Act and around what happens when there is a healthcare emergency, which is embedded in, in, in constitutional or, well, whatever there isn't constitutional law in the UK, but whatever makes up for not having a constitutional provision. So. And one of the other things that we're seeing, so we've seen it in the UK, um, national elections have not been suspended, but local elections have the mayoral election that was due to take place in May in London and local elections alongside that are now not going to happen for a year. In other countries, we're starting to see elections being delayed because it's thought that elections can't take place under these conditions. Yeah, as I said earlier, under our form of democracy, our very particular form of democracy, elections are the site of popular legitimation. Is there at least the risk here that this is moving in a different direction from some of those classical models, in that the emergency itself is also making popular legitimation of the emergency harder? Yes, I think certainly if we go in the direction of sort of cancelling elections or postponing them without an end in sight, there is a real fundamental threat to the to the nature of representative democracy. I mean, we operate on the basis of the idea that our representatives whom we elect in the election period make decisions on the basis of particular views or ideologies or whatever that represent different groups in society. And the idea is that different groups will take turn in informing the kind of direction of public policy for the periods in which a government is in charge and until the next election where a new government or a new political party has a chance. And so I think the, the fundamental threat that comes from cancelling elections is that power is no longer contestable. I mean, the idea, the fundamental idea of representative democracy is that power is contestable, that particular individuals who are in charge of executive decision-making can be removed from office and of course, that is no longer the case. If we start cancelling election, that means that people have no mechanism through which they can authorise representatives or through which they can remove particular representatives. So the whole system of checks and balances, which relies on elections, is uh, basically stuck and starts collapsing. I mean, I think that we have to remember that at least in, in this country, you know, in Britain, there, you know, there are precedents for not having elections, including general elections in a 
in a national emergency. We didn't have general elections through either of the, the two world wars, although we did have ongoing parliamentary politics that ensured that in both cases that the, the government that began the war was removed from office during the course of the war. The, the logic of not having the local elections that were scheduled for, for May um, 2020 and, and basically giving the, the UK government and also the devolved governments the authority to postpone any other elections until May of next year is that having elections is dangerous to people's health um, because it's going to involve significant large numbers of people um, going outside and co- congregating um, together. Whereas actually the argument for not having elections during the, the world wars, that, that was the idea that there should be limits to the, to the contesting democratic politics during a time when there was supposed to be national unity. Now, as I said, in Britain, that, that, that didn't actually stop political, profound political disagreement taking place. So I think that the, the question will become, in terms of its potential dangers for representative democracy, is, is if there becomes actually a, a, an absence of consensus about the ways in which we should deal with this emergency, and if the, the choices between... Um, you know, what risks we are running in relation to health and maintaining the National Health Service and in relation to the economy, in relation to potential civil um, unrest, in relation to how much coercive power should be used by the police, for example. If these become deeply contested, then I think we would expect to see it played out still in in parliamentary politics. Now, if that becomes difficult, then I think we are in in a difficult area where representative democratic politics is concerned. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In 1918, Britain had not had a general election for nearly a decade. Then the war ended and an election was held very quickly in December 1918, right in the middle of the Spanish flu that, as we know, killed more people than the war did. So in 1918, a war was a reason not to hold an election. But the spread of a disease that was much more deadly than this one didn't stop anyone. And it also didn't stop anyone in the United States, which has never suspended national elections, not in a civil war, not in a world war. And the midterm elections that took place in November 1918 happened, despite the fact that America was being ravaged at that point by the Spanish flu. So in the history of that kind of suspension of normal politics, war is the classic example, but disease on the whole isn't. I mean, this is somewhat different in that respect. It's also very interesting because, I mean, we have become so much more invested in elections than we were in 1918, say, because the franchise was so much more restricted then. And so if this was not done at a point where you know, not even everybody could vote, for example, or when people had just expanded the franchise, think about how much more this matters now where everyone can vote and where there is, well, except for migrants and so on, but where there is much more investment on the side of the electorate in what happens with elections and 
what, what decisions get made and how important it is to vote. Although you would say also in times of disaffection and uh, in times of depoliticization, where people seem to be very cynical about what politicians do and what role, how much of a difference institutions can make, where they think important policies are in any case at the mercy of international institutions and global market regulations and so on. When there is that kind of disenchanted views of the election, then some might be inclined to say, well, okay, fine, you know, we're not holding an election, not a big deal, because not many people were voting anyway. Is the argument that the thing we should be wary of is the absence of contestation within our politics? Maybe elections have to be postponed or delayed, but we should be looking out for the absence of checks and balances and the ability to question what the government is doing. Does that argument push against the idea of governments of national unity? Because that's the other thing that is often associated with emergencies. We had one in Britain during the Second World War. Israel has moved towards one. Israel is a very interesting study at the moment in the intersection between coronavirus and representative democracy after three elections and stalemate and seemingly that Netanyahu had lost power. He has used this crisis, for better or for worse, to engineer not just emergency powers, but also what looks like a government of national unity. Are those the conditions under which we should start to worry that this form of politics is right at the edge of its ability to function? Well, I mean, I think there is there is a risk that because with elections come moments of heightened political contestation, the issue is not so much the election understood as the ability of people to cast a vote, but all the political debate that goes with elections, all the attributions of responsibility to office makers and all the arguments that the opposition usually makes on whether, you know, the uh, government has been acting responsibly or whether they have executed the kind of policies that they had promised or whether they've acted on the basis of the principles that they usually uphold. So I think what's what we need to look at is beyond just the act of voting and uh, putting someone in charge, what happens to all the debate that comes with that and all the process that is a democratic process of participation in that debate, regardless of whether people then have the chance to vote or not. I think that the, the crucial question is, is really, is there going to be uh, a reasonable amount of consensus that the government um, in any country um, is making, if not the best possible choices, let's think of it as the least bad possible choices in the circumstances in which we all find ourselves. And so, you know, if you take the make the comparison go back to the you know the second world war in britain why did we end up with effectively a government of national unity is because any kind of consensus that had existed and you might argue never was quite there about what the chamberlain government um was doing absolutely broke down after particularly after events in in um in norway and so we ended up with a, a government of national unity is because that Winston Churchill and the and, and the part of the Conservative Party that supported um, Winston Churchill had more in common at that moment with most of the Labour Party than it did with the previous Conservative government. So you have a moment of disaster, crisis, and out of that comes the amount of consensus that was that that made the national that made um, a national unity government um, possible. We're not at that point at the moment in. In, in Britain where this crisis is concerned. I'm not saying that that doesn't mean that we could get there. But I think that the idea that you straightforwardly get at the beginning of an emergency crisis to a national unity government without there being a very severe backlash against something essentially deeply problematic that the incumbent government has done is unlikely. And in those respects, it could be said that Israel is now closer to the situation you described in Britain during the Second World War. That is... 
the consensus between Netanyahu and his potential rival, the alternative prime minister, Benny Gantz, is greater than it would have been had Gantz tried to form a government on his own. And we are nowhere near that in the UK. I think you're right. The divisions between the two main parties are still far wider than the divisions within the parties. I'm going to ask three questions you can answer at whatever length you think is appropriate. Three things that we touch on what we talked about, but we haven't quite nailed down. So one is about timeframes. We're early in this. These states of emergency have only been going in many places for a few weeks. Some of them have time limits, some of them don't. The trajectory of this crisis is very uncertain because we are already being warned by governments not to think that we can come out of it as quickly as we came into it. And one of the watchwords that we're going to hear more and more about is that we have to be vigilant for the return of the disease, that we have to be vigilant for the return of the thing that triggered the emergency. So under those conditions, does the emergency fade in and out as the disease comes and goes? Or is it more likely that as the disease comes and goes, as we wait to see if there's a second wave in the winter, a third wave next spring, the emergency remains? Well, I think that obviously the the easiest answer to that is to say it's extremely difficult to tell. But I think that there's a very realistic possibility that this isn't going to be a one-off thing, that we're simply going to be passed um, by the, the summer. And I think that is when we'll get into debates in some sense about whether the emergency has to go quite a lot further and involve, you know, like much tougher restrictions um, or much tougher suspensions of individual rights, including possibly in relation to privacy, some kind of you know, technological surveillance of of individuals to ins- to ensure that those who the state then says must be on quarantine are in in quarantine. And I think that that is where we would get into a, at least in Western democracies, a place where we where we simply haven't politically been before. Because Leah, you could say that there is going to be um, a very visible lifting of the emergency when people feel that they can leave their homes. You know, there's a kind of analog version of this. The analogue version of it is that people are in parks and the police come and tell them to go back to their houses. And it's familiar from the history of not just modern politics, it's almost medieval in the way quarantine is enforced. And when people feel freer to physically move about, there will be a sense that some aspects of this emergency have been lifted. And yet the forms of discretionary control, use of surveillance, possible arbitrary exercise of power not in an analogue sense, but in a 21st century sense, could far, far outlast the policing of parks. Yes, absolutely. And I think that is, I think that's one of the greatest worries right now is that on the one hand, we are presented with this, what's called a hopeful scenario, whereby with the ability to test more people, the interventions and the surveillance will be more circumscribed and there will be more kind of targeted lockdowns. But I think this precisely, as you say, in turn raises extremely important questions about how you're going to monitor these more circumscribed lockdowns, how you're going to enforce, how you're going to guarantee equal treatment of different subjects and not speak about all the questions that this raises about how it affects vulnerable minorities like immigrants in detention camps or homeless people or whatever. So I think we are entering a very difficult, very, very um, very morally troubling terrain. And I think one of the features that's most morally troubling about it is that there is this kind of unforeseeability of the future, which the more the, the, the longer the emergency lasts, the more we continue to do things differently, 
the less I think we can connect our post-emergency lives to our pre-emergency lives. And then we're staring into a completely open horizon in which anything becomes possible. And, and that's, I think, that that's the real worry. But that is very different from the thing that you talked about at the beginning, which is the time-limited dictatorship or emergency that is there to transition. I mean, it's hard to achieve in practice, but in theory, you have something which presupposes a wide open future that we're moving from one way of life to another way of life one way of doing politics to another way of doing politics through an emergency so outside of the rules but that that wide open future is not the emergency itself that wide open future is the thing that comes when the emergency ends and i as i understood what you were saying the fear now is that the wide open future includes the possibility of semi-permanent states of emergency Absolutely. I think the risk, the real risk is the permanent dictatorship and it's there and, and, and it's risky because, as I say, while in the previous understanding on the Roman understanding of dictatorship, the idea is that we return with a return to with the end of an emergency, which is a very short emergency, we return to the status quo ante. Here, we, I think it becomes more and more difficult to conceive what it means to return to what life was like before, because in the meantime, everything has changed around what we do and how we do things. And so we enter into this kind of complete, as I say, permanent state of emergency, permanent dictatorship, where I think the way in which we understand dictatorship is actually much closer to the modern understanding of dictatorship, which is the idea of a provisional and transitional government that needs to exercise power in a particular way in the name of a future order or a future idea of justice that needs to be realized rather than in the name of reinstating whatever was there in the first place. So I think there's two different conceptions of dictatorship, one which is the past-oriented uh, and the other one, which is the forward-looking one. And I think we kind of begin to abandon the realm of the past-oriented emergency and dictatorship, and we start entering this more modern understanding of dictatorship, which which is what we have and what we will have, I think, uh, where the dictatorship becomes permanent. That then leads on to a question which Helen raised last week. Within the European democracies, and that I'm using that term broadly and loosely, the outlier at the moment is Hungary, which has moved closer already to something that looks like a semi-permanent state of emergency, at least the extent of the powers, the lack of time limits, just the sheer heft of what Orban can now do unconstrained. It looks like an outlier, particularly within the European Union. Helen, you raised this point last week, and I want to ask you about it again. Can that kind of politics coexist with a political order, the European political order, where we have to assume most other democracies are going to be much more both time-limited and limited in other ways in their use of these powers. I mean, is there the possibility that this could fracture that higher level of order and consensus, the European order, precisely because as we move into this uncertain future, some of these states of emergency are going to become permanent much quicker than others? Yeah, well, I think that there's there's two different things here. I mean, I would say on the on the previous point, which I think is context to this is that the Romans had a, a succession of emergencies that required dictators. Um, is is that they you know they they did fight a lot of wars, and wars in the early Republic, um, when Rome was um you know not the empire which in time it would become, came with some frequency and they posed you know considerable dangers to um, Rome. So it was actually the you know the emergency repeated itself. It wasn't so much the question of going back to the past as the fact is that the constitution itself provided for the possibility of a succession of emergencies and that is what occurred. Now I think actually if you then go to the 
the later Roman Republic in the years which are going to lead, which would lead to um, its end and the dictatorships of, of first Sulla and then um, Caesar. And Caesar, in the end, was made dictator um, for life. Um, he was effectively taking that term dictator and using it for an entirely different purpose, which was to Rome to use in you know in, in Roman terms, at least if you looked at it as a republican in in Rome to rule uh, as a as a tyrant. So that that was actually to use the old language that justified the dictator in the emergency to use that term dictator and to use it for an entirely different form of rule, which was outside the old um, constitution. Now, I think if you look then at what's going on in in Hungary, you are going to see people in other European Union member states who are going to look at what Orban's doing and seeing it more in Caesarist terms, if we carry on with the, the Roman language, than as the emergency, even if the emergency is 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 repeated not you know infrequently in time. Now that that does raise profound questions for the European Union in terms of Hungary's position within it. And you can already see that in some of the criticisms that fierce criticisms that have been made um, elsewhere, including the former Italian um, Prime Minister um, Renzi, saying things that you might sort of interpret as, look, there is no place for Hungary any longer in the European Union. Now, I think in Hungary's case, it is more complicated by the fact that actually there's a whole set of other issues in which there is profound, serious distance at least in the way in which Orban talks about matters, than there is um, between Hungary and uh, and other member states. And there were, I think, a set of potential fault lines around Hungary's position, one of which, at least, I think, Hungary's relationship with China has also, which has also been amplified by this crisis, that could, you know, um, quite plausibly lead to some to a, a crisis around Hungary's EU membership. Because then you could say emergencies have a tendency to produce other emergencies. The emergency for the European Union is the possibility of one member state entering a semi-permanent state of emergency. And then the European Union itself has to adopt emergency powers to expel that member state. The EU does have ways of, at least in the kind of, in this, uh, in this legislation, does have some ways of dealing with members that violate some of the kind of fund- fundamental principles of the EU. One is to take them to the European Court of Justice over individual infringements, and that's usually effective, but it's very slow, and so far no government has challenged the European Court of Justice ruling, but it's very slow, it can be piecemeal, and so it's not clear whether it would be able to work in a case like Hungary. And the other one is to start with disciplinary proceedings to remove voting rights from a member state, and that's the kind of ultimate sanction. But the problem is that in that case, this can be blocked by another state. And since Hungary has the support of Poland, it would be very different. It's very likely that Poland would be vetoing this. And so it's, um, that's what makes it very hard in the case of Hungary. I think more generally, though, what this reveals, is this it becomes very glaring, this inconsistency in the criteria that the EU applies to member states as compared to candidate states, because in the case of candidate states and the accession negotiations through the EU continue with a number of countries in the Western Balkans, the EU is very insistent on applying criteria from the kind of Copenhagen um, agreement, whether it's about the stability of institutions, whether it's about democracy, whether it's human rights, minority protection, and so on. All of these things are challenged in Hungary right now, and, and Poland is around and, and sort of follows the same 
curve. So it becomes, I think, more and more of a kind of challenge also to the values of the EU, how it can uphold both of these things at the same time while saying no to some new countries because they haven't been quite as rigorous in applying certain or in, or in, in adopting certain regulations for protecting minority rights, how it can continue to keep in a member state like Hungary, which has got these blatant violations going on for a while now. I just read this morning, actually, that Hungary apparently declared an emergency over migration, which is not over yet. So there is that emergency that's still continuing. So that then leads to the last point, which is in some ways the biggest one of all. Various commentators have started to argue that what this crisis is showing is that what we thought were the clear dividing lines between liberal democratic and non-democratic or autocratic or authoritarian regimes are blurring and they may continue to blur these kinds of states of emergency and the kind of powers that they bring, bring democracies and non-democracies closer together. Francis Fukuyama wrote an article a couple of days ago in which he said that that was true, that the distinction, I mean, it's something coming from him, that the distinction between liberal democratic and non-liberal democratic regimes is looking much fuzzier, but a much sharper distinction is emerging. The new fault line is regimes that have the trust of their people, and regimes that don't, because in order to do this kind of politics, it goes back to the point Leia started with, you need some kind of popular legitimacy. Do you think, Leia, do you think there's anything to that Fukuyama argument that we have moved from democracy versus non-democracy to trust versus non-trust? I guess, I mean, the answer depends on two views of liberal democracy, what one might hold and that are usually aired. One is a more kind of hopeful view of liberal democracy, which says that liberal democratic institutions do realize certain ideals of democratic representation. They do a relatively good job at guaranteeing fundamental freedoms and so bring together these values of freedom and, and democracy uh, then the difference remains important if we think that they are good at doing that. But there is, of course, another more cynical view, and that's actually the one I happen to have, of the conditions that inform public decision-making and where liberal democracies always fall short of universal freedom and democratic representation because there is always inequality of influence or huge asymmetries of wealth and power. And so the difference already blurred under normal circumstances. And what the emergency does, it enables you to bring uh, out the argument about continuity between democracies and dictatorships or autocracies into sharper focus. But the conditions are already there also in normal circumstances. I like it. So it brings the blurring into sharper focus. Yeah, it brings the blurring into sharper focus, but it's always, it's a continuum. It's not the case that there is a kind of categorical distinction between the values of freedom and democracy that are already realized in the liberal democracies that we know as we know them, and then these autocracies that depart radically from these um, from liberal democracies. And so that's why I think for me, it's more a question of, I always tend to see the situation as a continuum as more dynamic. And there's moments in which, you know, there's democratic contestation and there's greater success at realizing these values. And then there's moments where this breaks down for a range of reasons that have to do with the conditions of global capitalism or, or whatever. And I think this moment is one where we can see the continuity more. It makes it more visible, but it's not as if it's come about because of the emergency. I think the tensions have always been there. But I think other people will probably have more hopeful views and more rosy views of what liberal democracies do, even at their best. So, Although maybe not on this podcast, Helen. <laughs> well, I, I think that you can look at this in, in, in two different ways. And the first is, is you would expect in an emergency liberal democracies to suspend some citizens' rights. That's what they do. I mean, even you know, the United States, which managed to hold uh, an election during the Civil War, uh, various rights that were protected under the Bill of Rights were still suspended by Abraham Lincoln 
that what liberal democracies do is as though that the rights come back uh, are enforced again and protected after the uh, emergency is is over that's what that's a sort of a fairly sort of persistent pattern with what happens in terms of wars and individual rights in liberal democracies i think though that there is one way in which you can say that the the line has been um, blurred and that is each form of government is the form of government of a state it's a centralized site of authority that has coercive power and justifies that authority ultimately in terms of life and death and protecting the subjects um, of the state and that um, whilst in liberal democracies we might like to think of ourselves as citizens we are also subjects of the state's authority and that state's authority and, and in the final instance that state authority has coercive power behind it is something that we um that we that, that we have to accept and i i don't think that there's a, a difference, if you like, between pre-emergency politics and emergency politics in the sense that the state's authority was always there. It's not like the state's authority has been, you know, like miraculously in liberal democracies, you know, like born in this in this political moment. It's just that our awareness of it has been, or an awareness of it has been thrust in our faces. We are going to be continuing the theme of emergency powers next week when we talk to Gary Gerstle, who is in the United States, about what's going on there with the Trump presidency and the state of emergency in America. As an extra episode this weekend, we're going to be putting out the interview we recorded before Christmas with Michael Lewis, in which he warned about the possible failure of American state capacity to deal with an emergency. We are in one now. We think that interview is really interesting in the current context, but Helen and I will also be having a discussion up front about what we think about Michael Lewis's warnings today. We will be back in touch with Leia in Berlin. We're going to be talking soon to Lucia in Italy. We're going to be back in touch with Adam Tooz in New York. Do please stay with us. Look out for extra episodes. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.